Welcome to another episode of Commuting the Cosmos. I'm your host, Samuel Hinton, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about exoplanets. So this is all thanks to an Instagram story I put out where I asked what people want to hear about. And someone with the name of Be Right To Go, of course, asks how new planets are discovered. And this is a popular topic at the moment, we're discovering a lot of them, so I thought, let's give that a whirl. And by a whirl, of course, I mean, after this podcast is done, you should be a fully qualified expert, guaranteed. And what better way to start than history? Before the year 2000, 34 exoplanets were known. Before the year 2010, that rose to 426, more than 10 times as many. And as of October 2018, right now, there are more than 3,900 confirmed exoplanets in 2,900 systems. And it will be, again, more than 10 times as many as last decade by the time we hit there in 2020. So this is an incredible growth of exoplanet discovery, which raises the question, what techniques, what new techniques or new technology has there been that allow us to discover all these new planets? On top of that, I figure we might as well answer the pertinent question, have we found anything interesting so far? And a hint is the answer is yes, at least yes to me, and once again, I might be slightly biased. There are many ways that we can detect exoplanets, depending on the distance to the planet, the planet's size, its mass, and a host of other factors. If you do your own research, you'll see tell of microlensing, direct observation, transit timing, and a host of other methods. And I could spend a long time talking about each of them in turn, but there's no need for this because there are two methods that make up the vast, vast majority of all discoveries, and they are transit photometry and radial velocity measurements. So let's jump into the radial velocity stuff first, because hopefully it's something that should be slightly familiar to anyone that's listened to one of many episodes before, because it's all to do with redshift. To recap, like normal, redshift is effectively the Doppler shift for sound, but applied to light. So as a car goes past and you hear that as it, you know, shoots past you, that that drop in pitch, well, you can get a drop in pitch, which just means a stretching in wavelength for light. You just need to be traveling a lot faster. For cosmology, we use this to measure the expansion of the universe. But for exoplanet discovery, we don't really care about the universe as a whole because we're looking so close to home, so what we can do is stick a spectrograph on a star and get its recession velocity relative to us. The trick is that you need a really good measurement to get a very fine recovery of that peculiar velocity. Whilst for cosmology, you can be kilometers of second out, and that's only a small thing. We really want down to the meter per second precision when you're measuring the radial velocity of stars. And you want this because to discover the exoplanets, you need to use the fact that not only are planets orbiting the star, but stars are also orbiting the planets. Planets have mass, so they have gravitational attraction, and stars feel that. For example, Jupiter orbits the sun. And the Sun also orbits Jupiter. Because Jupiter has so much mass, the center of mass for the system between the Sun and Jupiter, that's the point that they both orbit around, is actually outside the Sun's radius. So this means if someone from outside the solar system was to watch the Sun, it would appear to oscillate in motion back and forth with the period of one Jupiter year. In fact, 
The Sun moves around 13 meters per second towards Jupiter, but only around 9 centimeters per second from Earth, and that's because Jupiter is a lot bigger than us. Luckily, because modern instruments can go down to the meter per second precision, that means that if we were to observe a star with something similar to a Jupiter-sized planet orbiting it, we would be able to actually see it. You can see this even easier if we take Jupiter in our solar system and just shift it closer to the Sun. Gravity falls off with distance, so if you bring the planets closer in, not only will the Sun move towards them at a faster rate, but it's also easier to detect because it oscillates back and forth a lot faster. That is, the planets orbit the Sun faster, their year is shortened, and so you don't need to observe a star for years on end to try and see any change in its movement. So that's essentially how the radial velocity method works. You take a spectrograph and you point it at a specific star and observe it for a long period of time. Every time you observe it, you want to get how fast it's receding from you, and then, hopefully with enough data points, you'll be able to see an oscillation back and forth. By quantifying that oscillation, so how much it's oscillating and the, the time period that it takes to oscillate, you can determine the properties of the planet that must be causing that oscillation. For example, if a planet is heavier than another, it will cause more oscillation. If it's closer to the star, more oscillation and a shorter time period. So it's a useful technique. However, you might have realized one slight downside. When I said you take a spectrograph and you point it at a star, I did really mean a star. You have to have a fiber on the object you're looking at. You can't just take a spectrograph and point it at the entire sky. So you need to find a target first and do them essentially one at a time. With modern telescopes that have more than one fiber optic cable coming out of them, you can do them several hundred at a time, but that's still not many. There are a lot of stars in the Milky Way. And that brings us to the transit method. So the radio velocity method it used to be the main way of doing things, and then along came a space satellite called Kepler, and the transit method just took off. The premise is relatively simple. If you're looking at a star, and there's a planet or two orbiting it, there's a chance that planet will pass in front of the star and block some of the light. That means that the star gets dimmer for a brief period of time, and depending on how much dimmer it gets, you can determine things like the surface area, as in the radius, of the planet that's orbiting it. So in the same way as the radial velocity method, you need to be observing these stars for a long period of time, because you're essentially waiting for planets to complete their orbits, and that generally takes a few years, especially if you're going out further and further when the orbits take longer to happen. But the main benefit is that you're now using photometry rather than spectroscopy. So photometry is essentially just taking a camera and taking a picture of the night sky. You don't need a spectrograph, you don't need to pick out a single target, you just take a picture of the entire sky, or at least however much you can fit inside your telescope, and then you say for each bright thing in your picture, how bright is it? And because you can do this for an entire section of the sky at once, you can observe thousands of stars at once instead of one. And this is why the exoplanet discovery rate has completely skyrocketed in the last few years. It's all about the transit method. And just like with the radial velocity method, you can get multiple properties of the planets that are orbiting it. If you see the star dim down frequently, that will tell you about the period of the orbit. The amount it dims is linked to the surface area of the planet, so its radius, and the orbital distance. 
And then if you also combine it with the radial velocity method, if you do some follow up and combine the two, well, you can get even more information out. One bit of information that I find really fascinating is actually trying to determine whether or not the planets themselves have ice or water on them. So there's a difference between a planet that is just a ball of rock, a planet that is a ball of water, and a planet that is the ball of ice. And that is if you shine a light at those planets, they'll each reflect a different amount. This is fairly intuitive for us. We know that the full moon is very bright, and if someone went up and took all the grey dust on the moon and made it black, the full moon would obviously appear dimmer, it would reflect less light. So what we want is to look at this reflected light. With the transit method, you're mostly looking for the star dimming as the planet passes in front of it and blocks the light. However, as the planet keeps going around the star, it'll eventually go almost behind it, like off to the side, and then some of the light that that star is emitting will hit the planet, bounce off the planet, and just like we see light bouncing off the moon, our telescopes will capture light bouncing off that planet. And then by looking at how much light does get bounced off, so the brightening of the star relative to the dimming of the star, we can figure out essentially how shiny the planet is. It's called its albedo. Now, ice reflects a lot of light, water reflects a fair amount, and dirt just sucks it all up. So by determining how shiny the planet is, we can try and infer what's on the surface. And that's really cool. Another interesting thing you can do with spectroscopy is to look at atmospheric compositions of planets. When light passes through a gas, some of it will be absorbed and scattered. And the wavelengths of light that are scattered and absorbed are completely dependent upon the molecular composition of the gas. So what you can do is, as a planet passes in front of a star, some of the light that we receive has gone through that planet's atmosphere. And by looking for spectral features, so little bumps or dips in the spectrum, both when the planet is in front of the sun and then when it's not in front of the sun, we can figure out what must have come from the light passing through the atmosphere of the planet. And that allows us to try and see what exactly is in the air. Does the planet even have an atmosphere? If it does, what is in it? Also, super useful if you want to visit the place. So that's a brief rundown in the two most important methods we have for detecting exoplanets. And I'm trying to keep this a bit short because there's a few other questions I'm supposed to be answering. So let's just briefly touch on some notable exoplanets that we've discovered in the past. I couldn't talk about this without mentioning 51 Pegasi b, which is the first discovered exoplanet orbiting a main sequence star. Imagine Jupiter, but so close to the sun, it orbited every four days. It's just completely crazy, but you can see why that would be something that's easy for us to detect. Because it's so big and so close to the sun, it's going to block out a lot of light. It's going to cause that star to wobble a lot, and it's going to happen very frequently. Next up is Kepler-186f, which is the first Earth-sized rocky planet found in the habitable zone. The downside, it's 582 light-years away, it's going to take us a while to get there. So let's just throw that in the bin and talk about Ross-128b. That's close by, it's the second closest rocky planet, and the one that we think is most likely to be in the habitable zone. It's only 11 light-years away and it's around a very nice and stable red dwarf star. A lot of the stars that we're looking at uh, have a, a lot of violent behavior, and we probably don't want to check them out. This one is a very stable star, which is fantastic if we want to go visit one day. But if we just want to look at, you know, maximizing our chances, you can't go past TRAPPIST-1. So that's a solar system, not a planet, because there's no letter at the end. 
It's home to an ultra-cool red dwarf, so it's also very stable, in the Aquarius constellation. The good thing is that it has seven terrestrial planets, so seven little rocky planets like Earth. Three of them are in the habitable zone. Six of them might be, but three of them we're very confident in. And that means, you know, if you want to go to a solar system, just to check it out and try and find somewhere to maybe have a holiday, it's a bit hard to go past TRAPPIST-1 because if one of the planets is bad, you've got plenty more to pick from. Now, on a sadder note to end the podcast, I have to point out that the day I'm recording this, this is the 1st of November as I'm currently talking, is a sad day for exoplanet hunters because NASA has just retired the Kepler Space Telescope. It's had a few issues. Its onboard gyroscope system, so that's the thing that keeps it pointing at where you want to point, has essentially failed in multiple ways. So they're retiring the spacecraft. And so a few of us are going to have a moonlight vigil in remembrance. And so if you want to join in on that, I'm sure all the thoughts and prayers will be highly appreciated by the Kepler crew. But don't worry, there's more spacecraft up there, more telescopes, exoplanet science is just going to get better and better. So keep your eyes out and let's see when we can break the 10,000 planet barrier. Next time, I think I have a few questions on black holes. So I might talk about what they are, how they form, and how they're not actually that scary. A lot of people see the word black hole and they ask, are we going to be sucked in? Is it going to crush us? And the answer is normally no. But if you want to know why, and you want to reveal those mysteries, then you'll have to join me next time. Thanks for listening.